Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul has spoken of his confidence of heaven in verses one through eight, his concern to please the Lord in verses nine through 13 and Christ's love for us as the controlling passion of all that we say and all that we do and all of our endeavors in verses 14 through 17. Now, Paul is going to add a fourth motive, his commission from God in verses 18 through 21, Paul has been made an ambassador for Christ. That includes a message of regeneration in verse 17, a message of reconciliation in verses 18 and 19, a message of redemption in verses 20 and 21. Now, the role of an ambassador is to act in the interests of the sovereign Who sent the ambassador? Someone has said that an ambassador is a good man sent abroad to lie for his country. But that's really not what an ambassador is. This is not what Paul has in mind. This is not a biblical view of what he has in mind. I I need you to understand that Paul has come with a message. And the message is a message of hope. And the message is a message of peace. That which has been at odds can now be reconciled. Human beings don't have to be at war with God anymore. And so. He writes about regeneration. Look at verse 17. Therefore, that is in what we've just read. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That expression, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, and by the way, the key in the verse is going to be in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. Now, this word, by the way, is related to a Greek word, thesis. The transliteration of that is would be K and T. And S and I and then S again, which has as its root meaning the act of creating or that which has been created. Art and Gingrich, um, who are famous Greek scholars, write, quote, the Christian is described by Paul as kene, thesis, 
a new creature in the state of being in the new faith by the same words as new creation. It's the same word that he uses in Galatians chapter six, verse 15. That word, even though you may not know that word, it's related to a word that's come down into our own language. It's the word species. When we want to classify a new life form, when we want to describe something that has never been known before or that has now come to our attention, we, we call it a new species. And so when it says, therefore, if any was, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That expression, are passed away, aorist tense. Par el thane, which indicates a crisis experience. Are becoming new, perfect tense. Gegonen, indicating a continuing. The, the way the New American Standard translates this, I think, is correct. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. When Jesus invades our life, he does more than change our outlook or our perspective. And so part of the point that Paul is making is if you're in Christ, you are. And the word that we use is regenerated. We use the word born again. Remember, this is the word that Jesus is using in John chapter 3 when he describes to Nicodemus how you must be born from on high. You have to be born again. People have used the illustration of a, of a cocoon and a, and a butterfly. And some of you as a kid remember the cocoon, the caterpillar creates this cocoon. And... <laughs> I heard the story of a kid who uh, felt sorry for for the caterpillar and and he saw the butterfly trying to get out and trying to crack through the cocoon. And so he thought he would do the 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 caterpillar slash butterfly a, a favor, break the cocoon. But part of the transformation, the metamorphosis that takes place, it's sin in, in order to strengthen the wings. It has to go through that part of the struggle. And so it becomes an apt figure. A caterpillar is different than a butterfly. People may argue that the DNA hasn't changed, that the caterpillar and the butterfly share the same exact genetic signature. But the truth is, there's a transformation that takes place. And so it is with the person who's born again. The idea when you're born again isn't that you just have changed your mind about God or you've changed your heart about the circumstances that you find yourself in. Our relationship and our value system and our outlook is radically transformed. We look at reality on the basis of who Jesus is, what Jesus says, and then what Jesus has become in our lives. This is different from just simply taking off a set of soiled clothes and putting on fresh garments. There's something different, radically different on the inside. When I was reading this, it reminded me of the story of Dr. Christian Barnard. Some of you are old enough to remember, but he was the first physician who performed the world's first heart transplant in South Africa. 
And the doctor spoke to one of his transplant patients who was a a Dr. Philip Blyberg. And suddenly Barnard said, would you like to see your old heart? And Blyberg said that he would. And then at eight o'clock one evening, the men stood in the room of the Groot Schur Hospital in Johannesburg. And Dr. Barnard went to the room into a cupboard and there in a glass container, he handed Dr. Blyberg the organ inside was his old heart. And for a moment, he stood there in stunned silence. He was the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his own hands in a jar. And for a moment, he was stunned. He just held the jar in silence. And finally, he spoke. And he began to ask Dr. Barnard technical questions about the heart and about the procedure. And then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container. And Dr. Blyberg said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he turned, gave it back, and he left it forever. I thought, what a picture of the life that we have in Christ. Jesus has given us not just a new outlook, a new sense, a new perspective. He's given us a new heart. He's given us life from above, a radical transformation. Conversion, by the way, isn't simply a transplant. Our old heart or our old nature isn't taken away and replaced with a new one so that we can look back and say, there was a day when I had an old heart, I had an old nature, but now that's all been done away with. The fact of the matter is that our old nature remains firmly entrenched within us, incurably antagonistic to the things of God, constantly promoting wickedness inside of us. And so we have this positional reality where we are in Christ and then we have this practical reality of the way that we really live. And so if you take your left hand and you think of the positional reality that you have in Christ and you take the right hand of the practical way in which you really live when you know and you love Jesus, they should come closer and closer and closer so that the positional circumstance of knowing and loving and serving Jesus is reflected in the practical way that you live your life. And then at one point, both of your hands are going to be together. And you know when that point is? When you drop dead and you enter into the likeness of heaven. And there you are with Jesus. You awaken his likeness in a glorified body. We live in a world where people are quite content to have a church without a gospel. They're content to have Christianity without Christ and Christ without a cross. A longtime member of St. John's Church scolded the new pastor for his radical ideas and changes. He said, Reverend, if God were alive today, he would be shocked at the changes in this church. 
And I thought, yeah, if God were alive in your life and in your heart and in your ministry and in your church and in your theology. But think about it. There are a group of people who live their lives as if God isn't even real. Prior to our conversion, we judged people by human standards. But now everything's changed. We sometimes make the mistake that if a person is saved, old habits and old lusts and old patterns of sinful behavior are forever done away with. But that's not the point of this passage. The verse doesn't describe the believer's practice alone, but the believer's position. Does this mean that we're not? To practice righteousness and holiness? No, but the key is the phrase, in Christ. In Christ, old things have passed away. In Christ, all things have become new. The reason why I'm even bringing this up is because the passage doesn't say, in me, old things have passed away. In me, everything has become new. And that's why you shouldn't be shocked and surprised when you accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior and there's still stuff. Do you remember when you found that out when you first became a Christian? Hey, wait a minute. I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I thought that I was going to not do that anymore. And you discover that God is at work molding you, shaping you, transforming you. And then Paul gives this message. Look at verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. When Paul writes, now all things are of God, it's Paul's way of saying that all these things are from God. What things? The things that he's been talking about, the ministry his motives, his his moving motives, his what what he is trying to, to to help people understand. Remember, he's been constantly criticized that his motives are less than pure. And so he says, now all these things are of God. That is all the things that he's talked about, that the Lord is the author, the Lord is the source And again, this becomes an important point because there's no grounds for human boasting. There's no grounds in order for us to say, this is something that I've accomplished. By the way, there's certain things that you will never, ever be able to do. The first thing is you can never save yourself. So justification is always a work of God. And guess what? Sanctification is the work of God. Justification is the work of God. And sanctification is the work of God. And so Paul is, in fact, inviting the Corinthians to ask a different kind of a question. What kind of a God is God? He's the kind of God who has reconciled us to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself In what sense? We were broken. We were estranged from one another. By the way, in the New Concise Bible Dictionary, under the heading Reconciliation, it says these few notes, quote, By the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, God annulled in grace 
the distance which sin had brought between himself and man in order that all things might through Christ be presented agreeably to himself. Believers are already reconciled through Christ's death to be presented holy, unblameable, unreprovable. That word unreprovable means a new creation. God was in Christ when Christ was on the earth, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses. But now that the love of God has been fully revealed in the cross, the testimony has gone out worldwide, beseeching men to be reconciled to God. The end is that God may have pleasure in man. The point So that God can be glorified, so that he can be honored, so that his majesty and his glory, his purity, his holiness would be made known. By the way, there are two great passages in the New Testament on this theme of reconciliation here and in Romans chapter five, verses 10 and 11. In Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. The reconciliation isn't something that we wait for or hope for. By the way, the noun reconciliation, katalage, occurs twice here. And then twice in the passage that I just read, Romans chapter 5, verse 11, and then again in Romans chapter 11, verse 15. And nowhere else in the New Testament. Those are the only places the verb katalaso is found three times here in verse 18, 19, 20, and then once in Romans chapter five, verse 10. The only other place in the New Testament is first Corinthians chapter seven, verse 11, where it's used to describe the ministry of a woman who's been estranged from her husband. One Bible teacher says of Paul's ministry of reconciliation, quote, it brings before men the action by which God takes them up again into fellowship with himself. The idea being this broken circumstance, it's been initiated by God. This problem of estrangement, it's God who is at work. So what does all of this mean? Our sinful seeking ways are overcome and the fellowship with God is created in which it is replaced by living for Christ. And so, again, here's the idea. He continues the idea that he started earlier on in the chapter when he said, guess what? Jesus Christ has died not so that you can live for yourself, but so that you can live for God. And so that's the idea. And in verse 19, look what it says. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us. That's the apostles, the word of reconciliation. Now, again, 
What is this ministry of reconciliation? This is Paul's explanation. He's hoping that you, the reader, will go, well, what is this? What exactly is this? How are we to think about what Paul is saying? That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's two possible ways to interpret this passage, and I think both are biblically accurate. The first, was God literally in the person of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. Was Jesus and is Jesus literally God? The answer is yes. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is completely human. He is completely God. So whichever position is true, God in the person of Jesus reconciling the world, God as Jesus reconciling the world, the idea is that the person of Jesus is recreating that which was broken and estranged. Whatever else it means, it must include the thought that God was actively in Christ I want you to think about it this way. Removing the cause of estrangement. And what was the cause of estrangement? Our sin. Your sin. My sin. God never ever has to be reconciled to man, but man has to be reconciled to God. At first glance, the universalist might read these words and go, well, look, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us this word of reconciliation, then um, who needs repentance? Who needs belief? Who needs trust? By the way, is this passage teaching universal salvation? That's exactly right. It's not teaching universal salvation. How do we know that? Because elsewhere throughout the New Testament, we are repeatedly told. Repent. Believe the gospel. Trust Jesus. So for the person who says, I don't have to do anything and I don't have to believe anything and I don't have to embrace anything. Well, guess what? That flies in the face of the repeated warnings to turn from sin and believe the gospel. Universal salvation makes the threat of condemnation an empty threat. And remember, that's what we talked about on Sunday for those of you who are here. Remember when we looked at Mark's gospel and we uh, looked at the uh, 16th chapter. And I said, remember what Jesus said. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. The old King James has an even stronger word. It's the word damnation. Why would Jesus say such a thing if universal salvation were true? It makes the threat of condemnation an empty threat. The ministry of reconciliation has also been entrusted to Christ's faithful servants. 
And that's part of the point that Paul is making. We are entrusted with the privilege of going forth and preaching the glorious message to all men everywhere. And this is important because guess what? Angels weren't given this glorious opportunity. There was an angel in the book of Acts who appears to Cornelius and the angel could easily have said, turn from your sin and accept Christ. And that guy would have melted like a puddle. But he doesn't. He says, hey, there's this guy. His name is Simon, also called Peter. He's going to make his way here and he's going to tell you the truth. Because guess who's been entrusted with the gospel? You. You've been entrusted with the gospel. Why have you been entrusted with the gospel? Because you're the recipients of the gospel. And so. Poor, broken, flawed, feeble human beings are given the sacred privilege of announcing that God has made a way for salvation and reconciliation. The darkness, you don't have to live in it. The sin, you don't have to live in it. The emptiness, it doesn't have to be a part of your life. The doubt, the despair, the fear, the anxiety. It doesn't have to be a part of your life. So how are we to think about this message for the person who's really committed to reconciliation? There has to be a willingness to talk and to listen. And so for the person who's saying, look, if God has given you the ministry of reconciliation, then is it your job to keep people away? No, it's to bring them close. Is your job to figure out a way that they don't have to hear the gospel and that they don't have to be saved. No, your job is exactly the opposite. The person who wants to use logic and love and understanding rather than hostile imposition. You've heard the old expression, you catch more bugs with honey than you do with vinegar. And so... Paul has given a message, a message of regeneration, a message of reconciliation. And look in verse 20. Now, then. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 20 is proof positive that universal salvation is impossible because if the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus heals, cures, restores and reconciles everyone apart from repentance and faith and trust, then why would Paul do such a thing? Why would he plead and urge and implore people to be reconciled to God. You've heard me say it. It only takes one person to forgive. But it takes two people to be reconciled. And so Paul builds a summary or provides a description that extends all the way to chapter 6, verse 3. This is the summary of the word of reconciliation. So if you're reading this... The way that you would read it is you would say, okay, beginning right here, all the way to chapter 6, verse 1, and verse 2, and verse 3, he's going to give a summary, if you will. 
We might think of this as Paul's message that he preached to the unsaved. This is the message from people group to people group, from country to country. As Paul is writing these words, you know what he's doing? He's giving you a window into the message that he spoke wherever he went. This is the message. And I think it's important to remind you that Paul isn't urging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. Let me just put it to you another way. Paul is writing to the Corinthians as if they're Christians, that they know Jesus and they love Jesus, that they've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's not saying if you've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are, in fact, reconciled to God by Christ. And so what is he doing here? Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And so here he is giving the message as an ambassador that he has when he goes from place to place and person to person. He's urging people everywhere to be reconciled. So. That those people who are already saved, he is revealing the message that he preaches to the unsaved. If you're a saved person, do you have to get saved every week at church? No, the answer is no. You might have grown up in a religious tradition where you walk the aisle every week. You may have grown up in a religious tradition that taught you that if you committed a sin, then you were barred from heaven and you were now not reconciled to God, but you were disconnected from God and you have to get saved over and over and over and over again. And that's not true. You don't get saved over and over and over again. The Bible says exactly the opposite. If you lose your salvation, you can't get it back. If it is possible to lose your salvation, you can't get it back. And so the point that he's making now, then we are ambassadors. I want you to just think for just a moment. What are some of the unique functions of an ambassador? Well, number one, ambassadors are chosen by the government or the sovereign. In other words, could you become the ambassador to Thailand if you wanted to, or China, or Central or South America? Could you just go and and just show up and go, on behalf of the United States of America and the President of the United States, I'm here on behalf of the government of the United States of America? No, you don't get to be an ambassador unless... The government appoints you to be an ambassador. Number two, ambassadors. And this is where my analogy breaks down a little bit. Are supposed to be protected by their government. And they usually are. When a government does send you to China, Korea, when a government sends you to Central and South America, does the government of the United States have an obligation to protect their ambassadors. I think it's a twofold street. The host country has a responsibility to protect the ambassador. And the sending country has a responsibility to protect the ambassador. I think that's interesting in light of our worship service earlier when we were talking about God's protection. You see, the truth is, you're an ambassador. Ambassador. 
You're an ambassador sent by Jesus, commissioned by Christ into this world. You represent a government, not this government. You represent a king who is not the king of this world. And so there's a couple of things that I would point out to you. The sending nation would usually provide for the needs of the ambassador and then stand to protect them. Likewise, we as Christians are supplied our every need and we're given appropriate protections by the Lord. And number three, ambassadors are accountable. Ambassadors represent the interest of their country and they say what is in the best interest of the country. In other words, ambassadors know that they have to give an account of their actions to the host government and ambassadors have One message. It's the message that has been entrusted to them by the host government. The ambassador has the responsibility to communicate the message of the goals, the ideals and the interest of the government that has sent that ambassador. And that's your job. Since you're sent by Jesus with the message of Jesus. Your job is to stick to the message of regeneration, of reconciliation, of redemption. That's part of the point that Paul is making. Ambassadors are usually called home before a declaration of war. For those of you who have been following with interest the events that are taking place in North Korea, remember what that tin-pot dictator Said in Korea, all of you leave. I can't guarantee your safety anymore. By the way, if you're an ambassador and the host sovereign says, after April 10th, I can no longer guarantee your safety. What's the smart thing to do? Leave is right. That's the right answer. And because ambassadors are usually called home before a declaration of war. The Lord has yet to declare war on this wicked world. By the way, this world is a wicked place. It's in rebellion and disobedience to God. The Bible says that a war is coming. The Bible says that the sovereign God has declared a truce and invited all men everywhere to repent and be saved. We are living in a time where the Lord God in heaven has entrusted each and every one of you with a message. And you can communicate that message and say, no, no, today is the day of salvation. Remember, that's what it says elsewhere in the New Testament. Believe in the Lord today. Turn from your sin today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can turn from your sin. Embrace the message of hope. Follow Jesus with all of your heart. But there will come a day when God judges the wicked. But what if I suggested to you that Just like ambassadors are usually called home before the declaration of war. That's what I believe it teaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That the ambassadors are evacuated from this place. You know, there are some Bible teachers who believe that we're going to be caught in the crossfire of an all-out war. Of a just and holy God. 
against a wicked and cruel world. But not me. Ambassadors are chosen by the sovereign. By the way, are all believers ambassadors? Have you read John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus said to his disciples, as the father has sent me, so I send you. How did the father send the son? Ill-equipped? No message? On his own? How did the father send the son? The Father sent the Son with everything that He needed in order to accomplish all that He's asked Him to do. Do you realize that the Father who sent you and the Son who sent you will give you everything that you need in order to accomplish all that you need to do? Did Jesus have the right message? Yes. Did he have the right methods? Yes. Did he have the right motives? Yes. Do we have the right message? Not, not, not if the message doesn't include regeneration, reconciliation, redemption. That's our message. By the way, the most effective ambassadors learn the language of the people group that they've been assigned to serve. Does every single ambassador from the United States who represents every single country out in this world do all the does, does every French ambassador learn French? Does every Italian ambassador learn Italian? Does every Saudi Arabian ambassador learn Arabic? No. By the way, are you going to be a more effective ambassador if you learn the language to the, of the country that you're sent to? The answer is yes. Do you speak the language of this world? Do you understand what they mean by what they say? Do you understand their language? Do you understand their customs? Do you understand their worldview? Do you understand their wants and their desires? The ambassador knows that he or she is a stranger. The ambassador has an obligation to advocate not for the country that they go to, but rather on behalf of the country that sent them. And American ambassadors are tasked with representing our interests, our ideals, our deeply held conviction, our policies, our politics. And this is why it's so important for us to try to get representatives who reflect our ideas and our convictions. R.V.G. Tasker writes, quote, Ambassadors engaged upon human affairs are chosen especially for their tact, their dignity, their courtesy. And because they are gifted with persuasive powers, the ambassadors for Christ show the same characteristics. They must never try to bludgeon men and women into the kingdom of God, but must speak the truth in love because it is the gospel of divine love that we are commissioned to proclaim. And remember, remember, 
the reputation of the country lies in the actions and the attitudes of the ambassador. Whether we like it or not, will our ambassador in England, in Italy, in France, in Russia, in China, will they come by their attitudes and actions to represent all of us? The answer is yes. And will your attitudes and actions whether for good or for bad, in some people's minds, represent Christ's position to the world in which we live. Has anyone ever said to you, oh, oh, that's how Christians are. Oh, that's how Christians act. Remember that Paul reminds us that the calling of an ambassador is exalted and dignified. And we usually don't think of an ambassador as pleading or beseeching as being all that dignified. But that's the picture that Paul paints. He paints a picture of himself on behalf of God on bended knee and eyes filled with tears. That the hostility and the enmity is over. That God is urging everyone, everywhere, to turn from their sin. To turn to God. There's no reason why anyone has to be estranged from God. There's no barrier that God himself hasn't removed. God has removed all the barriers between himself and sinful human beings. The idea is what sinful barriers were there? There was sin and there was rebellion and there was disobedience. And God has removed all of those barriers. But there's one barrier left. Human beings have to voluntarily give up their stubborn revolt. William Barclay rightly points out, never once has God said to be reconciled to man. It is always man who is reconciled to God. Now, I want you to think about this. When the Bible says it's not his will that any should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. Does it shock you and surprise you that it probably means exactly that? That God isn't in heaven going, okay, I'll take you. Oh, no way. Forget it. Did you see that? This person? I don't think so. If that were true, then guess what? We would all be disqualified from heaven. Because God knows the truth about each and every one of us. All of us deserve hell. None of us deserve heaven. I don't normally quote Edward Kennedy, but he said, It takes two sides to make a lasting peace. But it only takes one to make the first step. He's right. One person making the step in the direction. Paul's argument is this. God in Christ has taken the steps necessary for you to experience love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, to experience regeneration, reconciliation and redemption. 
And now he's going to lay down the doctrinal basis for that reconciliation. That's what it means in verse 21. For he, God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin. Not a sinner. For us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. How has God made regeneration, redemption, reconciliation possible? How can he receive guilty sinners who come to him in repentance and faith? And the answer is that the Lord Jesus has effectively dealt with the whole problem of sin. Hey, I'm wicked. I know. I'm guilty. I don't deserve it. I deserve to go to hell. Yes, you're the perfect candidate. You're the one I had in mind all along. Paul states something so incredible. It's almost unbelievable. If you would have shown me as an unbeliever, verse 21, if you would have read it to me, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I I think I I wouldn't have believed you. I, I couldn't absorb the enormity and the impact of that single sentence unless I knew the truth about the sinfulness of humanity and God's commitment To save you and me. God has made Christ to be sin for us. Jesus innocent. Gino guilty. Jesus sinless. Gino sinful. Jesus faultless. Gino full of fault. Jesus priceless. Gino. Not worth the molecules and chemicals that keep his body in one wicked unit. That he might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think about that. Not simply forgiven. Not simply exonerated. But given all the privileges that are deserved by Christ, we are made the righteousness of God in him. And you look at that word righteousness and you may not have any idea what that word means. The simple definition is everything that is right before God. It includes the idea of rightness. God justified the wicked, Romans 4, 5, by imputing, reckoning, crediting, counting, accounting, righteousness to them and ceasing to count their sins against them. Let me put it to you in a term that I'm hoping you can understand. Imagine you owed me one billion dollars. And I said, now I want you to pay me back. And all you have is a Chick-fil-A gift certificate for $25. You owe me $1 
billion dollars and you have a gift certificate for Chick-fil-A. And I decide to take the gift certificate as payment. And then I take $2 billion and place it in your account. You see, if you're a billion dollars in debt, if you have to spend $1 million just to get to flat, stinking broke, that's a, that's a long way to have to travel. Jesus pays your debt and then he deposits all of his riches in your account. If I wrote you a check for $100, it would probably go past the bank. But if I wrote you a check for a billion dollars, it would bounce. But when Jesus writes the check, all you have to do is take it and cash it. But most of you don't believe that the check is good. And so you refuse to even place it. And that's the point when it says that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus not only pays your debt, but he deposits in your account everything. Martin Luther wrote about this passage. Paul teaches us that The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is passive, given to us in Christ. As this truth dawned, I felt I was born again and was entering in at the gates of paradise itself. There and then the whole face of the scripture changed. Just as much as I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, I now loved it. It seemed the sweetest and the most joyous phrase Ever written. This is what the righteousness of God means. God sees you. Exactly the way he sees Christ. And I find myself in a place where it's impossible for me. To explain. Or apply all that this text says. You see, sin is more than an outrageous insult to God's holiness and majesty. It's a threat to peace. The great cleric Hugh Latimer said, We must first be made good before we can do good. We must first be made just Before our works can please God. And Jesus makes us good. And Jesus makes us just. You know, one of David Livingston's first converts was an African chief named Seychelles. Who thought that he could make his tribesmen believe by force. So he suggested one day to Livingston. 
Elisha called my head man. And with our whip of rhinoceros hide, we will make all of them believe together. And he didn't realize that the natural man is spiritually dead and that a rhinoceros hide whip can't make a man a believer. Can you imagine if just whipping a person could make him a believer? Then we could get the whips out. So how do you become a believer? You have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. You have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. There has to be an awakening inside of your heart where the Holy Spirit whispers the word, I love you. I'll save you. I'll change you. I'll redeem you. I'll reconcile you. We're ambassadors of Christ. And remember, the ambassador belongs to the one who sent him or her. The ambassador is commissioned by the one who sent them. The ambassador exists only for the message of the sender. I have one message, Paul would say. I purpose not to know anything among you except for Christ and him crucified. The message of Paul. You can be saved, regenerated. You can be reconciled. And redeemed. The message of regeneration, verse 17. The message of reconciliation, verses 18 and 19. The message of redemption in verse 20 and 21. That's your challenge. Your men and women who are ambassadors of Christ. You've been given the power and the authority to speak on behalf of the one who sent you. And so Paul pleads. And it's okay for you to do as well. Would it shock you and surprise you if I said, it's okay to cry for your children and your grandchildren. It's okay to plead with them and say, come out of the darkness and into the light. You don't have to live an empty, dark, wicked life. You can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that we live in a world that has rejected the ultimate ambassador. Father, we know that when you sent the son, wicked men took him and killed him. But we thank God that Jesus came back to life. That even in animosity and wickedness, even while we were yet sinners... You are finding a way to forgive us, redeem us, reconcile us, change us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take the message to anyone willing to listen, anyone willing to respond, anyone willing to have peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.